verses 1 through 18. And I'm reading from the New American Standard this morning. Verse 1. After these things, he left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. And when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on I shall go to the Gentiles. And he departed from there and went to the house of a certain man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God whose house was next to the synagogue. And Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. And he settled there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But while Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat, saying, This man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrong or a vicious crime, O Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. But if there are questions about words and names and your own law, look after it yourselves. I am unwilling to be a judge of these matters. And he drove them away from the judgment seat. And they all took hold of Sothenes, the leader of the synagogue, and began beating him in front of the judgment seat. And Gallio was not concerned about any of these things. And Paul, having remained many days longer, took leave of the brethren and put out to sea for Syria, and with him were Priscilla and Aquila. In century he had his hair cut, for he was keeping a vow. This morning, this is the word of the Lord. This is, as you know, Justin's third week with us and his last week. Uh, And we are, as a congregation, grateful uh, for you being with us. Thanks. Uh, And we want to pray for you this morning and for uh, your wife, Joy. Thank you for coming with him and being a part of his ministry. Uh, Justin is an evangelist and storyteller at heart, and... Uh, he will continue to do that when he leaves here. So we'll pray for him this morning and pray a blessing on your future ministry. Thank you. Father, we have been blessed as a congregation to have our friend Justin and Joy here with us. Thank you that they could step in in this time of need for us as a congregation. Thank you for the way that your spirit has spoken through him already. And we ask, Father, that again today, it will be clear that the words that he speaks are empowered by the work by the Holy Spirit itself 
that we would hear the words of Jesus through Justin. I know that that is Justin's wish as well. So, Father, this morning, we ask that your son be glorified, that your son will be known. And we, we also pray for the future ministry of Justin and Joy. Thank you for the way that they have uh, gone back and forth across this country and to other countries, spreading the good news about Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would continue to bless that ministry through the coming years. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. It's been a slice being with you guys for the last few weeks. And I'm so grateful for your welcome. So nice to come back. Happy memories of being down in uh, Whidbey Island and other places where we've been together. So blessings, blessings upon you. And thank you very, very much for having me. Yes, and thanks for praying, James. I appreciate that. Yes, I do continue as an evangelist because I love Jesus and I want everybody to know Jesus as well. Uh, so that tends to color most of the things that I say. It certainly colors the things I write. I wrote a book called Love Your Neighbor for God's Sake, which is all about personal evangelism using your tome, your home, not your tome, your home. You can use your tomes as well. Um, and then I wrote a book, which is the whole Bible is a story. I think I told you about that last week, but there it is. There's the, it's too long to be one book because it was meant to be very short, but it came out so long that it had to be two volumes. But I take heart from the fact that the Bible actually is split into two as well. So to make an old story new, that's the Old Testament. To make a long story short is the New Testament. And it's just the Bible told as a story, one continuing epic saga. And it's wonderful when you look at it like that. It thrills me. I, I love the stories in the Bible because, as I've told you before, I don't understand the Greek or anything like that. So the story we're going to look at this morning is Greek. At least it's all set in Greece, in Corinth. I called it O2B1. O2B1. Because that's the heart of spreading the gospel, isn't it? That's what gives us credibility? That's what Jesus prayed, that we would be one. And uh, there in the book of Acts, Paul went about church planting. And as he traveled around in each town that he went, he would leave behind him a little remnant of people who loved Jesus and wanted to represent his presence in their particular town. Now, he did have a rough time, didn't he, poor old Paul? A really rough time because he went to Thessalonica and pff, it wasn't good. So he had to leave town for fear, really, that he was going to endanger some of the no local new Christians there. And he had a rough time in Philippi as well. So he actually left a couple of his buddies to go in under the radar to go back into Thessalonica to try and encourage the new believers there. But Paul himself went into Athens. And he found Athens a miserable experience, full of religious mumbo-jumbo. Even found an altar to the unknown God, for goodness sake. And he went and he gave his lecture to the intellectuals on Mars Hill. But they despised him. They thought that his talk of Jesus and the resurrection was two more new gods to add to their collection. So, because they told him to keep quiet until they could come up with a ruling that could have been months or even years down the road, 
Paul set out from Athens not wanting to waste any more time on those intellectual snobs in Athens. That was one thing, to leave town on the cusp of a riot, because you could feel pretty good about that as a Christian, but to be despised by intellectual snobs was really an affront to Paul's pride. So he traveled the 40-odd miles down the road till he came to Corinth, and he limped into town, feeling low and miserable. He was hurting from all the beatings that he'd experienced, and he was worried about the new believers in Thessalonica, and he was worried that he'd left behind two of his little proteges, Timothy and Silas back there, and he didn't know what was happening to them. They could be dead now for all he knew, and he was feeling very, very sorry for himself, I'm guessing. Now there he was in this big city that was very, very different than Athens. I mean, Corinth was 20 times bigger than Athens. It was very, very different than Athens as well. Instead of the ascetic intellectualism of Athens, it was now materialistic, nouveau riche, lived for the moment, Corinth. Instead of ancient, beautiful temples, they were modern commercial buildings. And instead of the quiet contemplation of the intellectual atmosphere of Athens, there was all the hustle and bustle of commerce and aggressive competition of sport. With the Olympics just down the road and the Isthian Games every other year. Now this was a, a city that was new because the whole place had been razed to the ground not long before by the Romans. And there was no buildings there any older than 100 years old. So it was very like Vancouver, wasn't it? In that it was very, very new. And the people who lived there weren't just pure Greeks. They'd been imported from all over the world. So Paul was pleased to find a, a good colony of Jews living there. But there were people from every culture and background and language and religion that you can imagine all living there, displaced building, all kinds of different religious edifices everywhere you looked. Dominated the whole town was by Aphrodite's temple up there on the hill and all her little protégés, her slaved prostitutes wandering the streets trying to drum up support for the worship of Aphrodite. So Corinth gave its name, actually contributed a word to the Greek language, which was to Corinthianize, which was to commit fornication, which wasn't, I suppose it was a bit like Sodom. So the place, and you just got to imagine how Paul must have felt coming in there, disappointed and sad and tired as he was, lonely as he was. This was a spiritually oppressive place. And to make matters worse, as far as we can see, Paul was flat broke when he got there. I mean, normally he'd be sent on his way by the generosity of the new believers in the town that he'd just left. But he hadn't left any new believers in Athens. Spent all his money to get there. So flat broke as he was, he had to go and find a job. Tent making, that was his trade. And there was a local tent makers association, which did very well, thank you. Because every year or two, they had to come up with a new Olympic village or an Isthmian Games village. And since tents were the best way of doing that, 
Paul did very well as a tent maker in that town. So for a while he kept that up, depressed, miserable, sorry for himself. But then things began to look up and he met a couple of buddies who were also tent makers. There was Aquila and Priscilla who'd also been kicked out of a big city by Claudius from Rome. And Paul was thrilled to hear that there was the beginnings of a church taking place in Rome. And he determined that he'd go and visit them one day, but in the meantime, he'd write them a letter. So he did. And then to cheer him up even more, into town came the buddies he'd left behind in Thessalonica, Silas and Timothy. And they came in with great news that the church of Thessalonica was doing okay. It was doing fine. And what's more, Doubtless, the generous friends just up the street from there in Philippi had sent them some cash. So they came into town with funds. So Paul immediately said, I don't want to waste any more time making tents. I'm going to concentrate on a job that clearly and definitely and desperately needs doing here in Corinth. I'm going to get on with the business of preaching the gospel. The God-given ministry of reconciliation. And he set out to establish, as he always established in every town he went, a welcoming expression of loving, forgiving unity, all based around the loving unity of who God is. For he wanted people to see God. I mean, religion, for goodness sake, in Corinth, as in Vancouver, as all over the world, was a terrible cause for disunity with the plethora of gods and religious ideas all vying for the popular vote at the religious polling stations. So Paul itched, as we do, to tell all the people of that great city that there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things come and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came to be and through whom we live. And then Paul fell into his usual pattern. Every Sabbath, he would turn up at the synagogue that was at the main street into town, the Lechian Way. And there Paul would gather every week and he would reason with the people there, trying to persuade both Jews and Greeks that there are no divisions in Jesus, but all are one in Christ Jesus. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. And Jesus had come down to break down all these dividing walls of hostility and where there are two to make one. Good news, wouldn't you think, in a divided, broken city full of people arguing over everything from games to business to religion. But the people were slow to respond. The first one to respond was Stephanus and his whole family. And Paul said the, the way you get initiated is by being baptized. Now, very conveniently, the Romans had built an impressive bathhouse just on the same street, the other side of the street, a few doors up. So that's doubtless where Stephanus and uh, his whole family were baptized. The next to become a believer who heeded 
Paul's words of the importance of love your neighbor for God's sake, he may even have read my book. The next was a Gentile who lived right next door to the synagogue. That's a neighbor, a next-door neighbor. Gaius Titus Justus, his name was. And then the next was a real coup for Paul and for the new church, was Crispus. He was the president of the synagogue, and that prompted an avalanche of people to come flooding into the synagogue every week. And they were all anxious to hear this thing that Paul had to preach. Jesus had arrived big time in Corinth. But you know, the regulars didn't like it. Their noses were put out of joint. So the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive. But rather than argue, because there was enough arguments in town, wasn't there already, without arguing over religion, Paul simply left. He didn't go far. He actually only went next door to the home of that Gentile new believers, believer, Gaius Titus Justus. And that's where Paul established the church in Corinth as a welcoming expression of loving, forgiving unity, a safe house for refugees from all the disunity that was going on in Corinth. Of course, anybody was welcome to join. And there was a simple rite of initiation, which those who'd already believed had already undergone. They simply took them up the street to the Roman baths and they baptized them so that they would all be able to say, we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, where there were Jews, Greeks, slave or free we were all given one spirit to drink. So those Roman bars were busy, don't you think? <laughs> and then they would meet every week. That was just the initiation ceremony. But every week they would gather, and they would gather in a friendly place. They would gather round the table. Now the Reader's Digest tells us, though Paul hadn't actually read it, though he might well have read my book, it tells us that the table is the friendliest piece of furniture in the house. Did you know that? And so it is. You sit around a table. I mean, we just had communion downstairs. Very friendly. Those of you who missed it, missed a treat. It was a great breakfast. And we sat around the table looking at each other. Table like common ground between us. And we said, it's not like now. All you can see is the back of the person's head in front of you, can't you? Can't make friends with them. I mean, you've got a, a sort of minute to go and shake hands with new people. That's great. But sitting around the table, we had 45 minutes to make friends and to eat nice food and drink great coffee together. Table is very, very friendly. And it's inclusive, as Sarah pointed out to us. Isn't that right, Sarah? That the table is not exclusive. The table is inclusive. Isn't that great? And so it was for Paul. They all met because the table from ancient times had represented the presence and was called by the ancients the table of the presence, where they ate the bread of the presence. Uh, and Jesus had promised that whenever two or three of you meet like that, 
You'll have my presence. I promise. I'll be there with you. And there, sitting around the table in happy together fellowship, they would remember Jesus. And they would break bread as we broke bread this morning. And they would remember that because there is one loaf, we who are many, from all kinds of different languages, Jews and Gentiles, scattered all over this great city, we are one body, for we all partake of one loaf. Paul was doubtless aware of Jesus' prayer for the church. My prayer is that all of them may be one Father, just as you are in me and I'm in you, complete unity, so that the world may believe the gospel that you've sent me and that you've loved them even that you love me God so loved that he sent Jesus the gospel so we sang that lovely hymn didn't we this morning about the church she is from every nation just as they were in Corinth yet one or all the earth her charter of salvation well, one Lord, one faith, one birth, one holy name she blesses, partake one holy food, and to one hope she presses with every grace endued. That's their favorite hymn in Corinth, don't you think? And we sang it this morning, and it was great. Now, so it wasn't just Paul's wonderful, eloquent lectures that attracted the Corinthians. It was the fact that there in Corinth, there was one place that was loving and safe and together, where there were no divisions. Therefore, the gospel that they preached, the fact that God can reconcile us with himself and with each other, it was believable. Because everybody could see it was believable. Because it was happening right there on the Lechian Way in Corinth. So, any time there was a whiff of a crack in the unity in Corinth, Paul was on it in an instant. He said, I would appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another, so that there may be no divisions among you, and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. See why it was important? Of course it was important. But you know, Corinth was a society broken and cracked into a thousand different pieces. And very soon the cracks in society started to creep into the church. And the things that were evident outside started to become evident Inside, and Because religion was such a big factor, outside they started to invent cracks and factions and cliques and denominations inside. One of you says Paul. One of you says I follow Paul. And another of you says I follow Apollos, who'd been a visiting preacher. You know, I, I, I follow Todd. I follow Justin, the visiting preacher. Duh. I follow Cephas. And the very holy one said, but I follow Christ. Paul said, is Christ divided? No. Haven't we just been singing that song about the church is one foundation? Jesus Christ our Lord. 
Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? I'm thankful actually I didn't baptize any of you. It's that old Crispus and Gaius whose home we're meeting in. So none of you can say that you were baptized into my name. See, the sacred symbols of our unity have always been the object of the enemy's attack, isn't it? Because if, if he can discredit the symbols, then he will discredit the God in whose images, whose image those symbols are intended to represent. We went to Rwanda a few years ago, found a country that was terribly broken. It was shortly after the genocide. And uh, we found that the missionaries, so as not to tread on each other's ship toes, had divided Rwanda into seven different portions so that each of the seven Protestant denominations could each concentrate on one section of the country. With the result that when we went there, we met a bunch of Muslims on the street. They said, what are you doing here? Oh, we've come here to talk about uh, unity, about God. Well, which God? Well, the Christian God. Oh, yes, but which Christian God? Well, there's only one Christian God. No, not in Rwanda. There aren't. There are seven Christian gods in Rwanda. I wonder if people in Vancouver wonder how many Christian gods there are when they see all our buildings and denominations. Do you know, in the genocide, the church was not a safe place for people to run, but they did get safety running to the mosques because the Muslims were united, but the Christians were so hopelessly divided, it was not a safe place to go. We held communion, for we went there once with a team of uh, 40 Canadian pastors, and we held a big conference for, I think there were 800 pastors came to it. And because we were concerned about this, we decided we would hold communion together. And all the pastors from the biggest Protestant denomination got up and walked out. They weren't going to break bread with some of those other people, some of those pastors from some of those other churches. And the next day they called me as the leader of the team to come and answer. And there were 40 or 50 pastors yelling and screaming and would have been waving machetes in my face if they'd had them. And I said to the translator, what are they saying? He said, you don't want to know. What are we saying to the people of Vancouver? Huh. We went to uh, Israel about a year ago. Went to that beautiful site, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is on the very site where Jesus was buried. Many different denominations are all want to have their slice of the pie there, their little booth or their little section of it. But you know, none of those Christians can agree so that the only person they could entrust the key to to the place, that most holy site that represents the death of Jesus, was Wagi Nusebi, whose hand I shook. He stands at the entrance and holds the key to the church, the Holy Sepulchre, because he is a Muslim. He understands unity, but we don't. And then there were the spiritual gifts.
about spiritual gifts, Paul said, because they were arguing, same as we do. The body is a unit, though it's made up of many parts. And though all the parts are many, they actually form one body, just as it is with Christ. So a few blocks up the Lechium Road from where the synagogue was and where the house of Gaius Titus Justus, whatever his name was, was the temple of Ascle... What was his name? Asclepius. That was his name. You scholars will be able to tell me that. Asclepius, who was the Greek god of healing. And that was frequented by anybody who was sick because it was the nearest thing they had to a hospital. And in order to be have their symptoms addressed, they would take a clay model of the particular part of the body that hurt the most, which sometimes was an arm and sometimes a leg and sometimes a more embarrassing part of the body than that. But they would take it there as an offering to the God to heal them. So people were very familiar with dismembered body parts in Corinth. But Paul said, they actually form one body as they do with Jesus. Just as you have different gifts, they all add up to one expression of who Jesus is. And then there was the argument over gender, which we still have. In the Lord, women are not independent of men. And men are not independent of women, he said to them. As the woman came from the man, so also the man is born of the women. In any case, we all come from God. So the controversy over the division between men and women that rages on at the moment over women leadership in the church was present in Corinth. And then there was the problem of the women who used to come bald. Aphrodite, the goddess of love and pleasure, employed many prostitutes. Statistically, I think she had a thousand who used to wander around the streets at night to seek to elicit worship, if you could call it worship of a kind. It was love, wasn't it? Or something like it, from all the pilgrims in town. It was easy to identify them because they were bald. Their heads were shaved. So you can imagine how when the prostitutes started getting converted and they came and they sat around the table and they were bald as a coot, they would tend to stick out. It's a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut or shaved off, as Paul wrote and expressed it. Why? Because it meant you were a prostitute, for goodness sake. So how could they avoid that disunity? Well, simple. Shave the heads of all the women in the town around the table and nobody would know the difference. That was a good idea. But that would be a pity, everyone agreed, because a woman's long hair is her glory. So that wasn't a good idea. So what say all the women cover their heads? Wouldn't that solve the problem? Ah. So would hats or baldness be preferable? And they prompted that hats were probably the lesser of two evils. I notice that you ladies are not wearing hats anymore. 
It's a good idea. Maybe you should shave your head like some of the guys present here. <coughs> but you see, don't you, how anxious they were and determined they were that there should be no di- divisions around the table. Then there was the intellectuals, Diogenes, who was a curmudgeon. He was a tank- cantankerous old philosopher who'd lived in Corinth a few generations previously, and he looked down on everyone with the intellectual superiority of a cynic. As intellectuals tend to, don't they? So Paul said, well, where is the wise man? If you're sitting around the table, some of you think you're so smart, some of you think you're plump stupid, but there's actually, that's not the point. Where's the wise man? Where's the scholar? Where's the philosopher of this age? Not many of you are wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. We're all as stupid as each other. In other words, happy around the table to be fat, dumb, and happy. Isn't that right? That's who we are. That's great. We don't have to be smart. Why do we tend to speak to each other in Christian meetings in Greek, for goodness sake? They didn't understand it then. We probably don't understand it now. We did an Alpha course in our church, and uh, at the end of the week on reading the Bible, we gave our Alpha group homework assignment. Go back and read this chapter and tell us what you think about it next week. The following week, none of them had done their homework. We said, why not? Well, the point is that we never read anything. Can you read? Oh, yes, we can read. But we don't read. Huh. Here we are, living in a non-reading society, and some idiot writes books and expects that people are going to read them. And we expect that each other are going to read the Bible every day when we don't read anything. We're all as foolish as each other, aren't we? We're all a bunch of ignoramuses. But that's the level playing field that Paul reduced everyone to. And then there were the athletes. The winners and the losers. The biannual Isthmian Games. Don't you know that all in a race, all the runners run, but actually only one gets the prize, says Paul. Is that the division between winners and losers? You don't win a silver medal, do you? You just lose the gold. So, run in such a way as to get the prize, says Paul. There's a huge camaraderie, I'm told, though I've never been one, amongst athletes who go to the Olympic Games or the Isthmian Games. They all get together in the Olympic Village and they're all really, really close. Even though they're competing against each other, they have this sense of camaraderie that they're all heading towards a common goal But only if they don't cheat. You see, if anyone competes as an athlete, he doesn't receive the victor's crown unless he competes according to the rules. I don't run like a man aimlessly running. I I don't fight like a man beating at the air. No, I beat my body and make it a slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. It matters not whether you win or lose, but how you play the game. Isn't that right? So we live our Christian lives 
all heading towards a common goal, goal, but according to the rules. There was no dope testing in those days, but the Isthmian athletes would all swear together not to cheat. And that made for a level playing field. Good fellowship. But no Russians would be allowed. So as Paul spoke of coming to the table, conscious that there were differences at the table, differences to show which of them at the table actually had God's approval. Maybe it was a letter of commendation. I don't know. But presumably that implied that there were some who might come to the table who were excluded, of whom God might disapprove. Borons, and you mustn't even associate with anyone who cheats, who calls himself a brother, who's sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer or a drunkard or a swindler. There's no room for cheats. But Jesus ate with those of whom others might disapprove. And he was criticized, wasn't it? The Pharisees and the teachers of the law and those who belonged to their sect asked him, Why do you eat and drink with these sinners? And tax collectors, those unapproved people. But Paul stressed that there was a level moral playing field, since actually there is no difference, is there? Because we've all sinned. We're all a bunch of sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And we're all justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So, there's no such thing as approved or disapproved. I'm Justin, and I'm an alcoholic. Actually, mercifully, I'm not an alcoholic, but I am a stinking sinner. And that's my qualification to come to the table. And that's great, isn't it? Because it's a level, level field. Do you know, time doesn't permit me to talk about the slaves and the free and the haves and have-nots, the haves who go ahead and eat and drink their fill, not thinking about the other guys who stay hungry. We did uh, a communion with all the churches together in Abbotsford not so long ago, and uh, I was leading it and telling the story of communion. And we had stations all over the church because there were a thousand or so people there with bread and wine set out ready for the communion and some homeless people wandered in and started picking up the loaves and making off out of the church and I thought isn't that wonderful that's what it's there for help yourself there's plenty more where that came from because why should we go ahead and gorge ourselves when there's other people anyway you get the point my conclusion I've got to bring it to an end because I haven't got more than three more minutes to tell you everything that this was all about. You get the picture I'm trying to paint. Corinth is very like Vancouver. We're very like the Apostle Paul, aren't we? Because we're here to proclaim this absolutely vital message to the people of Vancouver and Chilliwack, where I live. That's not a hard sell, the gospel, is it? Because it's loving, forgiving, accepting, welcoming, safe, non-judgmental, and full of grace. So why aren't people 
beating down our doors to come and hear this wonderful gospel. Why aren't they? How are we to express this wonderful gospel of truth? Well, just by being ourselves. Being like God. For that's who we are. One, as God is one. Then the world will believe that God sent Jesus and that he really loves them. And from that position of credibility, we proclaim the secret of our unity, don't we, as we meet together in unity. Because whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, what are we doing? We're proclaiming the gospel. We're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. It's a regular, vivid, acted parable of the gospel that you did so beautifully this morning over breakfast and was a lovely thing. It was a thing of beauty as we sat around those tables. Beautiful. And you've maintained that tradition ever since Sutherland was founded, I know. And so has the church that I'm a part of. So I don't think we do it as vividly as you do in the good old brethren tradition. It proclaims to the world that there is an alternative to war and hatred and division and divorce and racism and violence. But here's the rub. The very people who need most to see that active parable and hear that wonderful gospel hardly ever see it. We hide it in our basement or wherever we do it. We don't proclaim it. We don't invite all comers to come. People aren't beating down the door to come. Yet it is the one message most credibly expressed that everybody needs to hear desperately. So, when Paul saw that the loving unity around the table was being compromised, he recognized that it was a fatal sickness. And he said, that's why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. That's why the church is weak and sick, and a number of churches have died altogether and their buildings are being sold off. What causes that sickness? It's because people are eating and drinking the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. Thereby they're sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. How are they doing that? By not honoring and recognizing that the body of the Lord is one. There is one God, the Father, from whom all things come and for whom we live. One Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. There's one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. And because there's one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of that one loaf that represents that one Lord Jesus Christ through whom all things came and through him we live. And anything less than that denies the truth of the gospel. And causes the church and each of her members to be weak and sick and dying. And ladies and gentlemen, what do we say? 
I mean, I'm horrified about this. Wherever you go in Canada, and it's the same in other countries, there are lots and lots of buildings, and most of them are empty 95 or 99% of the week. Most of them have locked doors, and they all have funny names and funny different names, and nobody knows why in the world there are so many gods that are vaguely Christian all over, all over the city and all over the country. And clearly, it's a hollow promise because most of those churches are empty most of the time. And they only pay lip service actually to getting together as one. Chilliwack, where I live, is in the Guinness Book of Records as having the most churches per capita. And most of them are empty. Why can't we sell those buildings and get together and do one thing? I mean, it makes economic sense, apart from credibility sense, doesn't it? Now, I don't know what to say about this. I just recognize in this passage that Paul was very upset about it. If Jesus came to North Vancouver, which church would he go to, for goodness sake? I don't know. I think he'd be hard-pressed. He'd, he'd love this, wouldn't he? He'd love to be here because we love to be here and we, we love him. We're welcoming him. But he's looking for, wouldn't it be wonderful? And I'm only dreaming. Wouldn't it be wonderful if the Church of Vancouver could rent BC Place and hold communion together? Would, wouldn't that be a thing of beauty where we could proclaim the unity of the church because of the unity of who God is. And the welcome to all. Not an exclusive table, but an inclusive table where everybody could come and they would come flooding because they would see the grace and the unity and the love that is evident in the fact that we're together. Wouldn't it be wonderful if your kitchen table at home could become a place where your neighbors could be invited to come and break bread, drink a glass of wine, or eat a bunch of grapes, whatever is closest to your palate, and talk about togetherness. If we don't find a way of expressing the gospel of reconciliation in Jesus, the world is in terrible trouble. Are we going to leave it to the politicians? No. Because he's entrusted to us the ministry and the message of reconciliation. Now, Lord Jesus, we don't know what to do about this because we hang our heads in shame so often when we see how fragmented we are. And I don't know what the answer is. I just see how anxious Paul was to maintain the unity in Corinth. What would he say to the church in Vancouver? Uh, and Lord, all that's happened is water under the bridge, but how do we move forward from where we are now to where we need to be in order that the world will believe the gospel, in order that Vancouver will believe the gospel? 
great to import Franklin Graham to come and preach the gospel next year. Hallelujah. He does it very eloquently. But what about our unity? Lord, what are we to do about this? To pray that you'll help each one of us know as individuals and that you'll help Sutherland to know as a congregation what specific steps can and should be taken towards expressing the unity of who you are. Let that be true for Main Street in Chilliwack, where I go to. And for all the other churches up and down the street here. Lord, we don't know what to do. But our eyes are upon you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together, please.